Welcome to Life Extension. Life Extension is my series where I interview the scientists and pioneers of longevity. We're investigating the new frontiers of longevity for people and planet. On this episode, I've got Dr. Richard Miller. Richard Miller is a legend. The Miller Lab has been at the forefront of longevity and aging research for multiple decades at Michigan and one of the three centers. The Miller Lab at Michigan has been at the forefront of aging and longevity research for decades. I mean, we're talking to a legend. The work that that we cover about interventions, drugs, or treatments that may have some possibility, some real data that suggests big impact on longevity. I mean, that's coming out of Dr. Miller's lab and his partners in his long-running research project on drugs like metformin, rapamycin, things you've been hearing folks talk about loosely and lightly. Let's hear from him with the world's largest study on these topics. And things like long-life mutants, some of the comparative biology breakthroughs that we really ought to be thinking more about, and things like long-life mutants. And what should we really think about other animals? There's comparative biology topics that ought to be central to how we think about longevity. It's a fantastic conversation. I think you're going to learn as much as I did. I am uh, very pleased to have you. I've been reading your work for quite some time and listening to some of your other interviews. You're probably the most in-demand scientist for the entire cottage industry of health and beauty publications, since every magazine's cover issue is about the greatest, newest environmental interventionist sort of thing that'll turn back the clock on whether it's health or aging or whatever it else it might be. And I'm very interested to explore all of the very substantive themes, of course, that come from that somewhat lighthearted way of presenting it. But I've got Dr. Richard Miller on the program with us today to talk about longevity. So thank you for joining us. Pleased to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Your work is um, in some ways very accessible for the lay audience that I think has always been interested in anti-aging is probably like the kind of vernacular term for the field of longevity, perhaps. And then certainly the more technical audience that's been growing very rapidly, I think, on the topic of longevity. I mean, I take it you would agree that when you got started in this work, you were somewhat peripheral to the mainstream and all of a sudden you're a rock star of uh, biology where you're helping people live forever. Something has changed. Well, there are parts of that I agree with and parts of it I don't agree with. I certainly agree with the idea that discussions about ways in which responsible scientists can figure out ways to slow aging were uncommon 40 years ago and are becoming more and more common now. I don't think this has anything to do with immortality. That's a sort of a science fiction fantasy sort of trope. And uh, I think it distracts people from what's really going on, which is the attempt to develop real preventive medicines that can slow aging and keep people healthy for another decade or two. I think that's a legitimate scientific goal. And the idea of living forever is a crackpot. It's a crackpot idea. It's a distraction from what actually is important to talk about and is uh, rational and reasonable. Can we parse that for just one second? I don't want to take you off your core theme, but crackpot in two ways, right? So one is, it's just not practical that we're going to biologically live infinite duration. 
or anything yeah. close to it is your view. So yeah. not a thousand years, not 500 years, let's not be fools. Because there are organisms who do live that long, but you're saying humans are not among yes. those. That's if you why. would like to be a clam, have I got good news for you? <laughs> well, I want to. I want to get into at it. the bottom of, a, of the Arctic Sea. That's where you want to be there. As a right. person, so, though, it's not going to work. So crackpot. That's one dimension, and then the other dimension is the danger flirting with unrealistic ideas and the consequences that may have for the serious mainstream work we do to yeah, try to bring up a couple fun. of really good points, uh, and we can address each of them. The first one is, is there any evidence that you can extend lifespan, healthy lifespan in a mammal? And if so, by how much? And the answer, which 40 years ago was, well, not much evidence, a little tiny bit. The evidence now is yes, absolutely. There is plenty. There are at least four single genetic mutations in mice that extend lifespan by 30 or 40%. There are diets, at least two, that it can extend lifespan by 20 to 40%. And my lab, together with some other labs, have documented at least four different drugs, which when given to mice, extend lifespan by up to about 30% at the maximum. It's not crazy anymore to say, you know, I bet if we worked at it, we just might be able to extend healthy human lifespan by 20 or 30 or 40%, because we've got precedents for doing that. We know it can be done in animals like mice, that are built very much like how people are built. So it's no longer based entirely on fantasy and wish fulfillment. If somebody says 200 years, 600 years, a thousand years, then they've moved into fantasy and wish fulfillment. It's notoriously dangerous just to, to you know, shake your finger and say, one can never, ever, ever do that. That's a foolish position to take, but it's a correct position at this point to say, there's not the slightest bit of evidence that that could ever be done, whereas there's pretty darn good evidence now for extensions in mammals of 20 to 40%. Everybody is sort of familiar with that in dogs, right? I mean, uh, if you buy a Great Dane or a, a Mastiff or some really big dog, you'll have a nice, healthy dog for six or eight or maybe nine years. But if you buy a small dog, a Chihuahua or a, a West Highland White Terrier or something like that, that dog's going to stay healthy 11 or 12 or 13 or 14 years. Those are in small genetic changes within a species, the dogs, that extend lysine, again, by 30 or 40%. It's um, plenty of precedent for that. The other theme you introduced, which I wanted to address, was uh, whether it's a good thing to chat with grown-ups about uh, massive extensions of longevity, 100 years. People would not be silly, but 1,000 years is, and, and immortality, of course, is logically impossible. The reason I try to avoid that aspects of conversations is that A, they're, they're a distraction from what actually is doable and feasible, but more importantly, they make the lay public and a lot of the scientific public think of aging researchers as fantasists, as snake oil salesmen. Most people who are widely known to the public, most people who write best-selling books on you too can live forever, or I can make you young again, they are, I think, doing the, the field, the scientific field, but also the field of health and preventive medicine, a genuine disservice by creating expectations that are false. But more importantly, from lumping serious scientists like me and 100 or 200 of my best friends into the category of people who are trying to, to become artists, to fool you into thinking something they kind of know isn't true for whatever reasons, they're selling something or they'd like to be famous or get interviewed on a podcast. Yeah, well, these are certainly uh, worthy boundaries. And given the, the occasional difficulties 
by association that I guess longevity folks have with, you know, the term anti-aging, which is, I think, like a simple example. It seems almost benign to say, well, you know, aging is a collection of things that happen to people over time, the way childhood development happens, you know, you get older and then there's aging and maybe that's a phenomenon and we should study it as a medical phenomenon. And then if we were to try to slow it down or change it, maybe we're working on anti-aging and then all of a sudden you're selling cosmetics or something. Hope in a jar. you for a second there because those, that's a very important theme. And I think it's really important not to phrase it the way you did, but to phrase it in another way. There's several mm. different things that you said that I would never say. So let me just sort of, if it's okay. Um, yes, yeah, please. I mean, I, I was setting it up for you to actually make this point, yeah. right? Because the <laughs> casual observer might not choose their words so carefully. But please. Yeah, thank you. So the first thing has to do with the term anti-aging medicine. I have some good, serious colleagues that just hate it when I use the word anti-aging medicine because they associate it with professional organizations of con artists who like to sell stuff that doesn't work, but they don't want you to think it doesn't work. They've always made a lot of money selling it. They are, they call themselves experts in anti-aging medicine. And that's kind of unfortunate. My lab and a few others are actually working on medicines that slow aging. They are real, genuine, authentic anti-aging medicines. That's how they work. That's how they keep our mice healthy and alive for a long time. And using that term has been polluted, in a sense, by people who use it to refer to stuff that's illegitimate. But getting beyond the terminology, I don't think it's a good idea to think of aging as a collection of bad things that happen to happen at the same time. I think it makes excellent sense to consider aging not as a state, like an old person has a lot of it, but as a process. You put in a healthy young teenager and out pops someone in his or her 70s or 80s or 90s, which have got some stuff wrong with them. They might have bad hearing or bad cataracts or some cancer or even be dead or something. So the process of converting this healthy young person with very little wrong with him or her into someone who's functionally deficient in a number of ways. That's what we're trying to study. That's the aging process. It's not a disease. It's a major risk factor for all sorts of diseases, some of which doctors can bill for like heart attacks and strokes and cataracts, and some of which we don't really think of as diseases because Medicare won't pay for them. Things like wrinkly skin and slightly slower reflexes and maybe a little problem with your balance. You haven't fallen down, but balance is not as easy as it used to be. You might slip in the shower. That's kind of scary. All of those things happen when you get old. And what I'm mostly interested in is the process by which the 20-year-old that I used to be, and I didn't have any of that problem, turned into the 73-year-old I am today where a few of those things have begun to be uh, at least a little bit annoying. We have now drugs that, at least in mice, slow that process down. So the animals are closer to their youthful state for another 10 or 20 or sometimes even 30% of what their normal lifespan would be. I think it's perfectly fair to call those anti-aging medicines, even though I know that some people I don't really respect very much talk about it, use the term anti-aging medicine in a, a global way, talk about stuff that's not really supported by data. Now, you are famous for your work on interventions, right? This interventions testing program that I, yeah. I assume comes up anytime you speak to the public. Talk to me about that. It's um, clearly at some point there were lots of folks noticing things, whether it was metformin or rapamycin or whatever, and some kind of standardized protocol needed to be adopted. And you want to put everything through that protocol. And that's the general, the genesis, but you're now the, the gold standard and the benchmark for things that work and don't work. So introduce us to this uh, idea. Uh, 21 years ago, uh, 
the man who was running the biology program at the National Aging Institute, a man named Huber Warner, said, you know, I think the biology of aging program would benefit if we could develop drugs that slow aging. He got together about 20 of us in a two-day meeting, and we threw together some proposals and some ideas, and he and his colleagues at the National Aging Institute thought about it and uh, agreed. So they issued a request for applications. They wanted to fund research at three sites, and three people got awards, my lab at Michigan, Dave Harrison's lab at the Jackson Labs in Bar Harbor, Maine, and Randy Strong at the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio. We did something unusual. We agreed, the three of us, to do the same experiment at all three sites year after year after year. We, we spent our first year basically developing some protocols, and then we've stuck with them with only a few minor variations in the ensuing 18 years. What that means is that if a drug works at all three sites, we can pool the data together. That gives us a lot more statistical power to detect even moderately sized uh, benefits and effects. And if it works at all three sites, then the readers of the paper can say, hey, that looks robust. That might well work anywhere. If it works, the drug only works at one site, even though we've struggled to the same kind of mice, the same kind of cages, the same kind of food from the same food factory, all of that business. If the drug still only works at one site, then we publish that. That could be news. It could be interesting, but it's not robust. People like yes, no answers. This drug works or this drug doesn't work. But occasionally, all too often, actually, the answer is, uh, it might. <laughs> We've got some data. It sort of looks good, but it doesn't look perfect. So let's try again or see if we can figure out you know, why there's a disparity among sites. So that was one thing, one innovation that the ITP, the Interventions Testing Program, introduced. We also use the community as our only source of ideas. Anybody in the world who wants to suggest a drug can do that. We have a once a year deadline. Basically, they just write us a letter saying, here's a drug. I think it would work. Here's why I think it would work. Here's why I think it won't hurt mice. Please test it. And then we have a committee. I'm not on that, which ranks the drugs each year and picks five or six or seven a year that we agree, we decide to test them out in mice. We've, over the years now, we're in our, I think, 18th year. Over the years, we've tested, I think, 55 different compounds. And we found four of them that work really well, and another four that give a statistically significant result, but it's not a big result. It's not as big as the four that we're happiest with. The other major advantage of the interventions testing program is we do it in um, genetically heterogeneous mice. About 95% of the work being done with mice in the United States, not just aging, but everywhere, is with a, a particularly poor choice, an inbred mouse called C57 black 6. It's a poor choice because this way you're only testing one genotype. And if your drug or your behavioral trick or your test or whatever you're doing only works in black 6 mice, you've tricked yourself into thinking that it's going to work in general or in mice in general. Or if it doesn't work in black six mice, then you've missed something. It could be very interesting. So all of the mice in our program, every mouse is genetically unique, but it's always shares half of its genes with every other mouse we've ever tested. So like you and your brother or sister share half of your genes, but it's a random half. In that sense, every mouse we've ever tested is a brother or sister of every other mouse we've ever tested. And that gives us a degree of genetic disparity, genetic heterogeneity, so that we are a little bit, or rather a lot, more confident that our positive results are not due to the mistake of using a single kind of inbred mouse. 
I want to pause for a minute here and talk to you about Life Extension Ventures. It's the reason I'm doing this series for In The Know. Life Extension Ventures is a venture fund dedicated to working towards the longevity of people and planet. The future of humanity depends on our planet surviving. And its potential can really only be unlocked if we focus on some of the technologies, some of the breakthrough science that's making it possible for us to live longer and better lives. Life Extension Ventures is a venture fund focused on supporting visionary founders that are working towards longevity of people and planet. It's the future of humanity that they're working on and we wanna back them. I spent a lot of time as a science person, as an academic, as a student, and then I spent even more time becoming a company builder and venture investor. And with Life Extension Ventures, I'm bringing both of those things together with my partner, Yaki Berenger. It's got a similar story. And we're out there finding folks who want to build companies that can really make a difference for human life. We'll need this planet if we want to survive, and we'll need to focus on these breakthrough technologies if we really want to unlock human potential. So here we are doing it and sharing with you this episode is uh, some of the breakthrough science that we've been learning about and trying to back. Well, I'll continue to be your foil here then. I mean, as impressive and the amount of foresight, because the problem with aging research is it takes a lot of time. And if you had to serialize the replication, that'd be a nightmare. And here you are running them three at the same time across a diverse group of subjects. As your foil, I had to take the other side. Maybe the softball is, well, what do mice have to tell us about people? You were making fun of me and calling me a clam a few minutes ago. Sequoia trees live for hundreds and thousands of years, and there's other kinds of stuff out there. And is the mouse really so similar to us? And what do we, it's, isn't it tiny? It's so small. I mean, big mammals, small mammals, there's a difference, isn't there? We and mice, as I'm sure you know, are very, 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 very similar in most ways. That is our brains and our spleens and our livers and our eyes and our ears and our thymus and our lymphocytes are really similar. All of the signals that go between the brain cells, all the hormones, all the neurons, all of this stuff, there uh, one-to-one similarity uh, between mice and people and dogs, between all essentially all mammals. Now, really, there are some differences. Humans are big and they live long, and so they're going to get a lot of cancer unless they have special anti-cancer defenses. It's important to study the things that are different in humans that mice don't have. That's not a trivial issue. Those are really important issues. But for most things, if a drug is going to work, it may well work in both rodents and in people. Nearly all the drugs that work in people were first discovered because they did the same sort of thing in rodents. They either cured cancer in rodents or they lowered blood pressure or they changed heart rate or they made the animals fall asleep for surgery. Those drugs work across species barriers, not always, but enough of the time. Often a question comes up, hey, if it works in mice, it sometimes doesn't work in people. And my answer is absolutely. That's the case. If you have 100 drugs that work in mice, and if five of them work in people, you're doing pretty well. There are an awful lot of things that might not work in people and work fine in mice. But you obviously can't screen drugs with 50-year experiments in tens of thousands of people. You have to start with something that is very similar to a person, but short-lived. So that's what we do. Could it be that the salient difference is the one that matters for this subject? Meaning they live 30 days, we live 30,000. Isn't there some 
very important. Maybe that's the whole point that there's. Yeah, but the, the thing I'm trying to say, uh, and everybody knows it, most drugs that work in mice and do something will do something quite similar in people. Now, sometimes yeah. it might might have side effects. They might be not optimized for people. The dose might be very different. But if I have uh, a list of drugs that make a mouse sleepy, a lot of those are going to make people sleepy. If I have uh, drugs that okay, can- and and so I take your point, which is that you know aging its processes, its systems. So which ones are failing? Let's figure those out. We've got a drug that works in mice on this system. We've got a similar system. Let's come and apply it. And I guess as you've been sifting through the 55 compounds that you guys put through ITP, you mentioned four that, and some of them are very famous. People talk about them a lot now. And I'd, I'd love to have you tout them for a minute and, and give us your take and, and maybe even give us a prognosis for when we might be seeing them at a human center near us. There are several difficulties in making the jump from mouse success to human success. For example, it may be that a drug only works if you start taking it when you're a healthy young adult and you have to take it for a long time. So in principle, one could test that, but only in principle, one could test that by taking a batch of healthy 30 year olds, giving them a drug and coming back 60 years later and seeing who's alive and who's dead. This is impractical, hopelessly expensive. It's not gonna go anywhere. The government doesn't wanna pay for it for obvious reasons. I don't wanna do it for obvious reasons. Drug companies aren't keen on that. That's not gonna be the way to go. The thing that drug companies are most excited about is not fully rational. They say, look, here's a drug that slows aging. I wonder if you gave it to some old people, maybe it would slow the last year or two of aging. And that's not impossible. I don't wanna say that's you know hopeless. It's not really founded on a careful judgment. That is the things that occur to you in your 30, 40, 50, and 60 that eventually turn you into a 70 or an 80 year old may already have occurred when you're 70 and 80. And a drug which is specially chosen to retard the lifelong process of aging may not be able to work when you have someone who's already kind of old and some of these changes have already occurred. The other problem is a legal one. The FDA, in its less than infinite wisdom, has decided you can't, you're not allowed to ask for permission to test a drug on aging. Now, some clever, clever human clinical trialists are trying to get around that. It's a noble effort by telling the FDA their indication, not aging, no, 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 that's illegal. But they want to know if the drug will slow a compound endpoint consisting of did not get Alzheimer's, did not get cancer, did not get diabetes, did not get a stroke, and did not get a heart attack. We're not calling that aging, nope. But this is our compound endpoint. And at least some people in the FDA are willing to go for that. I still don't think it's going to solve the problem of the logical necessity to test a lot of drugs for decades. I think there are two things that are, are going to work. I hope the FDA doesn't listen to these suggestions. One idea is that if there's overwhelming evidence that a drug is safe in people who are taking it for decades for something else, and pretty darn good circumstantial evidence that it may slow aging in, let's say, mice plus dogs, I think a lot of people are going to want to take it. And doctors are going to say, you know, it's FDA approved for whatever, diabetes. Well, it sounds like you're describing metformin, for example. In That's a one possibility, diabetes. except metformin doesn't work in mice. And it's unclear whether it would work in dogs. But yes, that's the gist of it. But let's say for the sake of argument, we had a drug like canagliflozin. It's our most recent success. Canagliflozin extends male lifespan in mice. For reasons we don't understand, it does not do so for female mice. And we're 
trying to figure that out. But let's say that a batch of dog aging experts gave canagliflozin to dogs starting at five years of age, and then they came back five years later. Dogs are now an average age of 10. If the ones that got canagliflozin are healthier and not showing the mortality risks of normal dogs, the FDA won't approve that for humans. It hasn't been tested for humans. But some doctors may say, well, canagliflozin, yeah, that's safe in people for decades. It's extending lifespan and slowing all sorts of bad things in dogs and mice. I wonder if some of my patients might benefit from it. That, I What's canagliflozin indicated for now that people have been taking it for long duration? It's a fairly new but very popular and appropriately popular anti-diabetes drug. And there are human trials early on, but suggesting that it may help protect people from heart attacks and kidney disease and certain kinds of cancer. So the human data, although it's at this point sort of sporadic and short term, is consistent with the mouse suggestions that whatever is responsible for the death of the mice, most of which are forms of cancer, canagliflozin is slowing that down. We also have a paper that uh, has just been submitted where we didn't look at what killed the mouse. We looked at what diseases does the mouse have when it's middle-aged. And we found six diseases that mice get, six different organs when they're middle-aged, and canagliflozin in males slowed all of them. So these are signs that a wide range of age-associated diseases are being delayed in the canagliflozin treated mice, in addition to the things that would kill them if we if we let them go on. So that I think is the most likely path by which- On FDA, but you've tempted me now and I have to ask a little bit more about these sort of frequently named sure. miracles that are laying in front of us, right? And some of them are fantastic and some of them are bunk as you probably know better than anyone else. But people have been talking about metformin, rapamycin, nicotinamide, riboside, and the the red wine drug. (laughs) Some of these are good. Some of these are terrible. Give us a little bit of a flavor. What's your your favorite, most overhyped failure? And what's maybe something that's quite underappreciated and sitting right there? We can go through the list of ones that you mentioned. Metformin, I think, deserves a lot of attention. The mouse studies that the ITP did showed that it did not extend lifespan. Now, that was just at one dose maybe a slightly higher dose or maybe a slightly lower dose would have done so. But so far, there's no evidence in mice that it extends healthy lifespan or lifespan at all. But there is some data, an observational study, not a clinical trial, but an observational study in humans suggesting that if you are diabetic, which is of course bad for you, and you take metformin, your mortality risks go way down, even lower than normal non-diabetic people of the same age. So that doesn't prove that metformin would slow mortality risk in non-diabetics, but it sure is a hint that it may be good for people. And those two sets of information are not incompatible. The drug may be good for people and simply not extend mouse lifespan. Those could both be true. So I think exploration of the notion that metformin may have anti-aging effects in humans deserves a lot of attention. It's getting a lot of attention. I'm, I'm And it's a very safe drug, very inexpensive. It's been around for many years. That's right. It seems like a no regrets move to give it a try, but you certainly wouldn't want to get out there and tell people go get it. I have been seeing longevity kind of N equals one personal biohacker type people really talk about metformin as one of their favorites. I don't want to tell people yes or no. I'm not a doctor. I'm certainly not their doctor. <laughs> if someone um, decides that metformin, preferably after consultation with his or her own physician, is not going to hurt them and might, who knows, do a good thing for them. That 
to me, is a rational decision. If a person, after consultation with a physician, decides that's a good move, I can't critique that. Then the next one I think that you mentioned was NR, nicotinamide riboside. There, I think the evidence is weaker because we don't really know whether it's safe in people for decades. It might well be. I don't want to volunteer to be one of the first people to find that out. The ITP studied it in mice. It had no effect. There are people who are selling it. And not too surprisingly, they really think it's great, but I haven't seen any data from them showing that it's good in humans or in mice. Their website is filled with things that, they, that are truthful. They're not going to get sued for perjury or for lying and are sort of a wink and a nod. Makes me feel better when I take it or I feel perky and healthy again or changes oxidation enzymes. All of that may well be true. What they can't say without getting sued is, extends human lifespan or extends healthy human lifespan or extends mouse lifespan because they don't have any data. They're hoping people will sort of not notice that. And I guess their enthusiasm, I mean, in part comes from self-interest, but perhaps it in part comes from a like a seductive method of action that seems like it ought to be right, that cells are somehow fixing themselves with the raw ingredients that they're needed. And maybe at the cell level, they've done You are such a nice guy. You are being so nice. Yeah, that is the most polite way to talk about their reasoning. They have convinced themselves, I think unjustly, without the slightest rational justification, that if it if oxidation is in some vague, ill-defined way bad, and you have a chemical that put on a specific cell type makes it sort of less oxidized somehow, then maybe giving the stuff to a person might be good for them. And that just doesn't hang together. We don't know, let's say that you have an antioxidant drug, for instance, and you have a vague, ill-defined notion that oxidation is a part of aging or contributes to diseases. It really does not follow that a drug is bound to slow those diseases or extend aging. It's actually a pretty solid test of that. There are at least 50 published papers in which people, human beings, got antioxidant drugs and it did them no good. And in a couple of cases, it made them sicker. A very large, prospective, interventional clinical studies in healthy middle-aged adults tried combinations of different drugs. Some of them actually increased the risk of specific forms of illness. I don't know these studies terribly well, and I don't want to quote them because I would misquote them. But the general notion that if a chemical process is bad, the drug is going to be good for you, that's not thoughtful. Yes. And, you know, it's often given as a caution by scientists and illustrative examples are often perhaps less vivid than the public might grasp onto. I mean, two that I came across recently, I was speaking with Nir Barzlai, and he gave the example of hyperbaric chambers, you know, providing putting more oxygen on people. That seems crazy. We thought oxidation causes cancer, yet there's some evidence that that's exactly the opposite of what we thought, where you give more oxygen. And maybe there's a way it works, who knows, but it's an intriguingly contrarian result. In another conversation, I was hearing about cellular regeneration and the Yamanaka factors and applying them indiscriminately across different organs. Maybe some organs, you do want them to kind of revert back to pluripotent and regenerate themselves, but some of them, you really don't want them to do that. Your liver might disintegrate if you apply this stuff and shocking, you're killing people with something that you thought was a miracle. And so it's certainly possible that things that have the, you know, the kind of whiff of reality like maybe these NR, these NAD things are in that category. If you're really skeptical there and you're feeling a little bit more open on hormone, let's say, or canonical close, and how do we feel about resveratrol or sutuins or... 
Well, I think the, the general things. principles, the general principles you were just enunciating are really good. Each one of these is a good idea. It could be that NAD goes down with age, which is related to NR. It's very sensible to say that we might be able to do something to improve health in middle age or old age by boosting the cellular levels of NAD. Now the question comes up, what cells? <laughs> by how much? Are there gonna be side effects? Maybe you wanna do it in some cells, but not in all cells. Are there ways of doing it perhaps by one week on, one week off? All of those are sensible. You don't wanna just sort of assume, hey, let's just dump some of this onto your oatmeal and see what happens. You wanna explore the details the nuances, because it's only through that sort of nuanced thinking that these pretty darn good ideas could potentially, a few of them, get translated into authentic, effective, preventive medicines. For instance, rapamycin is now well known. It's one of the first drugs that the ITP published, which had a really big effect. And it also had the really cool and very surprising phenomenon that it, it worked pretty well, even if you gave it to mice they were already in late middle age, that is uh, sort of the equivalent of about a 55 or 60 year old person. It also had a lifespan benefit, most surprising, really exciting and interesting data. So let's start with that. Um, you don't want, I think, to just randomly give a lot of people rapamycin at a dose, which intuitively you think might be good for them. But you do want to start asking questions like, are there specific cells where the target of rapamycin, the enzyme that it blocks, is too high? When you get old, maybe giving that cell something that's specific that will, to a limited extent, interfere with the targeted rapamycin, that might be a way of creating a good, healthful anti-aging effect with minimal side effects. But the doing the hard work, first in mice, right, and then eventually translating whatever you discover in mice into targeted, phased, carefully monitored human studies that's, I think, much more likely to have potent effects on overall human health and well-being than 99% of the research is being done on specific diseases like Alzheimer's and heart attacks and strokes. They're all very terrible diseases. I'm sorry when people get them and I like learning more about them, but actually preventing all cancers turns out to be really hard and preventing Alzheimer's turns out so far to be impossible, except by slowing the aging process. Well, the anti-aging things that we have in mice, the reason the mice live a long time is that essentially all the bad things that aged animals get, they get them, but they get them much later. I think if you really are serious about wanting to prevent Alzheimer's, you study aging and its links to Alzheimer's. Or same is true for Parkinson's, same is true for Huntington's disease, same is true for stroke, same is true for cataracts and diabetes and all that stuff. I think the secret, the thing's actually gonna work is learning about how to slow aging and how slowed aging slows down essentially all of the diseases for which aging is far and away the most important risk factor. So let me take you uh, to explore this now for a second. You know, a, a few minutes back, we were talking about aging. It's a process or it's a collection of processes, perhaps it's not a single clock ticking. It's a bunch of stuff that's rolling, I guess, right? So there must be some families of processes that you would describe as the sort of big chunky ones. There must be some stuff around, you know, cells, maybe the immune system, perhaps. What are the big blocks that we ought to think about? Or is it literally everything that you study in biology, it's got a, an aging vector that it moves through? 
I like the way you frame it. I'm going to give a slightly different frame in just a moment. I think the way you're framing it is good because you ended in a question mark. There are people who say it's immunology or it's a neuroendocrine change or it's your DNA methylation pattern or it's glucose tolerance. And I think every one of those ideas is good, but we just don't know yet. And I think to do good, effective thinking about aging and research on aging, you don't want to close prematurely any one of those lines of thought. When you say it's collagen cross-linking, you know it's not the other nine or 10 things on the list you mentioned. And that's wrong because we can't eliminate most of them. We can eliminate, I think, senescent cells and telomere stuff, but that's one of the few exceptions of theories of aging that have been effectively disproven. They haven't been abandoned. They're sort of zombie theories. They keep rising from the dead to haunt us year after year after year. But most of the other ideas are still not disproven, highly interesting. I would provide not the opposite framework, but an orthogonal, a different framework. My lab and a small number of other labs are asking a very cool question. What things happen in young animals if they are part of a slow aging cohort? So for instance, we have four different genes at slow aging. And we look to see what things in the fat, what things in the muscle, what things in the brain, what things in the liver or in the blood are always changed by these mutations. And we found about 10 of them. And then we said, okay, now let's look at the famous calorie restriction diet, which also slows aging and extends lifespan. And we set up these nine or 10 things that were changed by the mutants. Are any of them changed by calorie restriction? And the answer was yes, all of them. Then we said, hey, look, we've got four drugs now. I wonder if these things are changed by the drugs. Let's give the drugs to mice. And then when they're healthy young adults, see if any of these 10 things are changed? And the answer is yes, all of them. So now we have a, a list of things, some in fat, some in macrophages, some in liver, some in muscle, and some in brain, and some in plasma, where anything we've done so far, whether it's a drug or a diet or a mutation that slows aging in mice, changes all 10 of them. So this raises two classes of questions. The first is, why is that? I mean, what is going on upstream that makes all 10 of these things happen together? I think it'd be really nice to know what that is. That's going to give us a target for pharmacology. And the other class of questions is, okay, so which ones of these things slow diabetes? Which ones of these things slow Alzheimer's? Which ones of these things slow cancer? Which ones of these things slow skin wrinkling and muscle loss? Each of those, those are questions in pathobiology of disease. They're really interesting. And if you have a list that of things that are always changed by a slow aging thingy, whether the thingy is a drug, a gene, or a diet, you can ask about connections to disease going in one direction and connections to some still unknown common shared, you called it a, a clock, which is a, a decent mechanism, a timing mechanism, that uh, is responsible for these multiple changes. Well, I mean, it's an ingenious path of investigation. Stunning to correlate these three together. And if you've got these 10 that you think hang together, consistently manipulated by these three ways of investigating it, maybe that is a clock. Is that the biomarker? Is that the age that we're looking well, the, the for? Clock, I got to go look the at The clock metaphor is not, I use it a lot, but it's not a great one. Because a clock starts at zero and goes up and up and up and up and up and up. I don't think of it as a clock so much as something for another poor metaphor, a suit of armor or something, which you can put on when you're young and leave on 
no matter how old you are, and it protects you from spears and arrows and things like that. I think that somehow these slow But still, it's a thing that can be measured. And that was the heart of my question. Yes, yes, that's the point. Yeah. You're right. Are we close then to an age test? It's really important to understand why that's the wrong question. Biomarker in, in the context you're using it might be something that changes with age, but if you're aging slowly, it changes more slowly with age. It's an index of how much aging you've got under your belt. What I'm talking about is something utterly different. It's something that tells you whether you are in a state that makes you resistant to aging. These state indicators might go up with age. They might go down with age. They might stay utterly the same with age. I don't care. What counts is that if you've got it, you're going to age slowly. So it's um, potentially both an indicator of your being in a slow aging state, but also potentially a cause of the bad stuff that happens to old people. And both of those are um, important ideas to put an awful lot more attention and energy on. The third thing that's important is the one we were just talking about. Why is it that all 10 of these things change together? Do they have one feature in common? I'll make this up. I have no idea is the correct answer, but maybe um, there's a cell in the bone marrow that gets all this stuff going in the same direction or a cell in the brain that makes all these changes or something like that. I don't know. I'd like to know, however. Um, I because of yeah, I so it's a, it's a family of aging resistance factors, I guess. Yes, uh, aging resistance factors. I like it. Yeah, yeah, how interesting. A totalizing worldview, Dr. Miller. Like a complete picture of aging is coming from your lab and from your work over well, these years. Sort of, you know, when you're making a jigsaw puzzle and you start with a thousand pieces, you get to a point where seven of the pieces fit together. I think that's where we're at. It's We're not at square zero, but there are a lot of pieces that don't yet fit into the puzzle. It's, an, it's extremely puzzle, exciting. You could, you could call it totalizing when we're closer to the end. Well, I feel like we're on some kind of track. I mean, I agree with you on that, and it's quite inspiring. Let me ask you a question that just takes us away from your work for a minute, and it'll be a way for us to wrap up after appreciating so much the work that you have done. If you weren't working on the stream that you're working on now and dropped somewhere else of your choice, where would it be? I mean, longevity is an awfully interesting place to be right now. And working on these, you know, the interventions, perhaps even more specifically, but where else would you go? Who's someone else that when you hear them talk, you think, Jesus, I wish I was over there doing that. I'm the wrong person to ask. It's like asking Mozart whether he'd like to be a, a soccer player or a badminton player. I'm no Mozart, of course, but Mozart from the time he was a baby only was interested in music. And from the time I was a baby, I was only interested in aging research. So uh, I, I can't, help, can't help you with that. The, in the spirit of your question, I'll give one area of research we do a little of, but it's it hasn't come up in our conversation. And that's comparative biology of aging in mammals and birds, that is in warm-blooded creatures. Nature has kindly devoted uh, 40 million years to making long-lived birds, long-lived mammals, short-lived birds, short-lived mammals, and a lot of species in the middle. So I spend a lot of my time asking, what is it that is characteristic of long-lived rodents, long-lived primates, long-lived bats, long-lived carnivores, and long-lived birds? And three or four times we have found an answer. We found like a specific enzyme. It's a mitochondrial enzyme that protects mitochondria from oxidation. And it turns out cells from long-lived birds always have a lot of it. And cells from long-lived primates and long-lived rodents, long-lived carnivores, they always have a lot of it. Apparently nature can't make a long-lived species without turning this enzyme on. We have four such examples of things that are characteristic 
of long-lived animals of multiple clades, that is, animals that are not closely related to one another. So I think those are clues to where we might want to look to get good anti-aging drugs. For instance, this particular enzyme, if we had drugs that turn that enzyme on, right, then that could potentially make our cells more like that of very long-lived animals. And that might be worth a shot. So the, the idea of exploiting nature's generosity in creating really great long-lived animal models for us to play around with, not very many labs do it. There are a few other labs that have gotten, done some excellent work with this idea, but not nearly enough. I think uh, that's the part of aging research that hasn't come into our conversation, but has a lot of promise. And I think you're right to gesture at the process of evolution as we're getting to the end of our conversation here, because we could go on for a very, very long time on related topics, I think. Thank you so much for spending time with us and talking to us about about your work and and, and your views about which things are are the most exciting. I think it is an exciting time Mm -hmm. in longevity.